This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Putting particles into the upper atmosphere like a volcano. Reflect incoming sunlight back to space. Stimulating plankton blooms in the southern oceans. A sprayer that could whiten marine clouds. Geoengineering is moving from science fiction to serious consideration. But will it be the silver bullet for avoiding runaway climate change? If you keep emitting, you can't keep up with it with any of these technologies. The only thing is this might take the edge off for a while while we finish this energy transition that we have to make. Because the risks of geoengineering are not just technological. People will do the thing they do with the idea that humanity could live on Mars or on some other planet. They will uh, take less seriously the responsibility to uh, decarbonize fast. Engineering Climate Solutions, up next on Climate One. I'm Devin Strolovich. For decades, a small group of researchers in the United States and other countries have been tinkering with the idea of reversing climate change by spewing dust into the air. They say humans could simulate volcanic eruptions, which are known to temporarily cool the Earth, as temperatures around the world continue to rise. The idea of such geoengineering has moved from science fiction to serious consideration. Over the next hour, we'll hear about the scientific, moral, economic, and technological dimensions of humans getting so hot, they decide to break the glass and spray a huge fire extinguisher into the sky. In the first part of the show, Greg Dalton is joined by three guests deeply involved in the geoengineering debate. Ken Caldera is a climate scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford University and a foremost expert on geoengineering. Oliver Morton is briefings editor at The Economist and author of The Planet Remade, how geoengineering could change the world. And Kim Stanley Robinson is an award-winning author of science fiction. His most recent novel is New York 2140, which tells the story of how the city and the residents of one building adapt when every street becomes a canal and every skyscraper an island. Here's our conversation about engineering a global thermostat. Oliver Morton, let's begin with a story. 1965, uh, U.S. President Lyndon Johnson receives what is one of the, the, the first time a U.S. president receives a report on climate change. And rather than talking about reducing the source, uh, Roger Revelle had a novel idea for addressing it. Tell us that story. Well, yeah, this is the reason that this story matters so much is because it shows you how attitudes to the climate and the right place for humans to be in the world can change quite strongly in quite short periods of time. So Ravel has done the work in the 1950s that has shown that carbon dioxide is, contrary to some previous expectations, building up in the atmosphere. And he knows that this is going to lead to a level of greenhouse warming. And he puts this into the uh, report of the president in 1965. It's a sort of like it's an appendix to this, to this report. And he says, well, what should we do about it? And in 1965, talking to Lyndon Baines Johnson, you do not say, well, we're going to radically change the whole nature of capitalism. You don't say we're going to do anything about people making oil in Texas. Uh, you <laughs> say things like, we could put lots of little reflective bubbles on the surface of the ocean and reflect back some of the sunlight. And at that time, the idea of uh, a technological fix had not taken on the somewhat... Um, uh, condescended to uh, sense that it has today. Um, the idea of a technological fix did not seem in and of itself absurd. And it's quite extraordinary that just in 50 years, um, the fact that that was the only thing that report said now seems extraordinary to us. But maybe in 50 years' time from now, people will say the degree to which people are unwilling at the present era to talk about uh, this form of geoengineering, not little balls on the ocean, but any form of geoengineering, maybe that would also look strange. 
There's another story. A few years later, uh, Edward Teller and some other scientists were exploring the impacts. Obviously, this is the height of the Cold War, nuclear winter. And how is that connected to the um, evolution of what is geoengineering? Well, it's connected in an, in an interestingly unexpected way. Um, when people talk about nuclear power throughout the 20, early part of the 20th century, they link it in their minds with power over climate. Um, because it seems like a sort of like ultimate godlike power. And so the great British radiochemist Soddy, when he writes the first popular treatment of radioactivity in the, in the, early, in the early 20th century, talks about how it, can make, how it can destroy ice caps and make deserts bloom. That's what nuclear energy does. Same thing happens straight after the Second World War. Um, Julian Huxley, Aldous Huxley's brother, talks about maybe melting the Arctic ice and making a new world for us all up, up in the Arctic, and this is the power of the atom. But when people like Teller actually talk talk about using atomic weapons, atomic power to actually fight wars. Oddly, this story goes in reverse. And for many, many years, people do not talk about the climate impacts of nuclear war. And now it seems, again, in retrospect, blazingly obvious that if you set off huge fires over much of the surface of the Earth, you might do something to the climate. But there's a sort of like studied, uh, and I don't think deliberate, but definitely psychologically telling, refusal to engage with that. And so the idea of nuclear winter comes about much later than most people think. I mean, I've had to, uh, I've chosen to uh, correct some fairly eminent uh, historians on this, that they all talk, oh, nuclear winter, that idea of the 60s and 70s. No, it starts in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. It was a way of thinking about the world, a way of thinking about human power within the world that was very late to come to attention because there was a vested interest in thinking that in some ways nuclear world could nuclear power could end the world without changing it. Or that a nuclear power, yeah, war could be fought and winnable, that sort of thing. Uh, Ken Caldera, let's have you explain what is geoengineering. What's a, give us a brief explanation of this is a very abstract concept. How do you describe it? There are two main categories of geoengineering. If we think about the global warming that humans are producing, it's primarily due to the fossil fuel CO2 that we're adding to the atmosphere. And this carbon dioxide in the atmosphere makes it more difficult for heat to escape to space. And so one approach, which is relatively non-controversial, is to just remove some of the carbon dioxide that we're adding to the atmosphere. But if we think about what's heating the Earth up to begin with, it's the sunlight hitting the Earth, and we're absorbing this solar radiation. And so another way to cool off the Earth would be to reflect some of that incoming sunlight back to space. And this is precisely what volcanoes do, and the Earth has cooled after each of the large volcanoes that have occurred over the last 50 years or so. And so the other leading idea is basically to emulate what big volcanoes do, put material in the stratosphere to reflect sunlight. And there's a few other ideas as well, but they're all based on the same idea of reflecting sunlight back to space. Kim Stanley Robinson, is that uh, uh, comprehensive enough, the idea of either sucking carbon out of the sky or bouncing heat back toward the sun? Well, I think that the, the common understanding of this term geoengineering has morphed fairly quickly to the notion that it would be a technological silver bullet where you could do one thing and solve the problem of us burning fossil fuels. So uh, people immediately object to it as a kind of a moral hazard that if we think that we can get away with it, that we won't decarbonize fast enough. And then also there's a certain resistance to the technocratic in general of uh, taking over of the 
the, not just uh, uh, world history, but even planetary ecosystems themselves by some uh, poorly defined technological elite with a method in mind. And so many things have gone wrong in, in the human interventions in this planet before that people distrusted on several levels. So it's getting attacked almost immediately for things that are not quite right or true. And yet, they, there's reasons why these attacks have come about. For instance, people will say, well, you put something up in the atmosphere, and then you, we're going to accidentally cause an ice age. And there's not an understanding that, like volcanic explosions, that dust goes into the atmosphere. For five years, it's cooler. Then it falls down to the ground. So in a way, this is kind of an experiment that we could run that has a natural terminus to it. So it's a, a little bit safer than uh, other things that might be suggested. So, yeah, it's, it's gotten complicated. I always try to say, well, geoengineering, if we plant a lot of forests, um, if we give all the women on the planet their full legal rights, we've changed the climate of the earth in a radical way. So that's geoengineering, too. And this kind of blows the discussion apart, and I'm not sure that's where we want to go tonight. <laughs> but um, I think it's important to point out that we're, we're talking about um, humanity's relationship to the biosphere and the planet as a, a, a complex system that we can't hack, that's not the right word, but we might be able to finesse it in ways that will uh, keep us from causing a mass extinction event. So we need to talk about it, but it can quickly get scary in several different ways. Yeah, I, I, I don't particularly like the, 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 the hack metaphor, but I, one thing that you were saying I, I, I can't emphasize enough, the idea that there is in some minds, and I think in some of the popular conception of geoengineering, that it's necessarily an alternative to reducing fossil fuel emissions is pernicious and wrong. Um, there's no iron law that says you have to have one or the other. You can quite easily imagine worlds where you have both and. There is this idea of moral hazard, this idea that um, if, you, if you're insured against risk or in other way, some other way immune to risk, you will be riskier. And it's clear that the moral hazard is a real thing in the world. Um, you can look at the banking system and see an awful lot of moral hazard. <coughs> the people will take risks if they think they'll get bailed out. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't apply only to geoengineering, and it doesn't apply only to solar geoengineering. The biggest amount of moral hazard that I see in the geoengineering debate at the moment is actually with the carbon dioxide stuff. I was at the uh, Paris Climate Conference, and it was a very inspiring conference to be at. Um, and it came away with the world actually having a system for talking about dealing with this problem and with a set of ambitions of keeping warming well below two degrees, which is you know, a high level of ambition, but with pledges on action um, that were grossly insufficient to that high level of ambition. And so what you're finding in the discussion about future emissions at the moment is there's an acceptance that in the second half of the 21st century, in the first half of the 22nd century, something somewhere will be pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. But there's no real discussion about how that's going to be done. And that's where moral hazard gets really dangerous, because you begin to say, well, always we can trade off emissions cuts now with more sucking out later. And when you haven't really done the research in a way to find out how you might do that sucking out or whether what level of sucking out is possible. That's very tricky. So there's been a lot of talk about moral hazard with the sunlight mechanisms. I think the sunlight mechanisms from this point of view, not from all points of view, are kind of safer because it would be a really big thing that you know there would be big political debate about to do that. At the moment, now that we've let um, negative emissions, carbon dioxide reduction, into our thinking, 
but haven't stopped to work out how to actually do it. I think that's the area where there's moral hazard at the moment. Ken Caldera, where is the status of testing today? Is there any testing going on today, uh, either openly or secretly at the, the US, at the Pentagon or anywhere else? For carbon dioxide removal, there is testing. There's a pilot plant going on up in Canada right now, and also, of course, planting forests and so on is a form of carbon dioxide removal. For the sunlight reflecting techniques, basically all the research is indoors at this point, mostly in computers. And do you think it should go outdoors? Do you think that there should be real-life outdoor testing of this technology? I think with appropriate safeguards and oversight, uh, by appropriate governmental bodies, there should be outdoor experimentation. But I don't think just rogue individuals should go out and uh, do it themselves. There's, Oliver there's, Warren. A, there's, a, there's a really interesting precedent here, which Ken was actually involved in, in that one of the more radical ideas about removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere was the idea that you could do it by stimulating plankton blooms in the southern oceans. Um, and this was an idea that was brought about partly because it's an idea about how ice ages might start and probably has a certain amount, not a complete, but a certain amount of validity in that area. Um, and people tried doing it. And so they went out into the Southern Oceans and well-instrumented scientific experiments, dumped a lot of um, iron in, saw what happened. And it is true that there was increased photosynthesis, not to the extent that they expected and there were various complications. But what's really heartening about this story is that people took the issue seriously. There is um, an international agreement about what you can and can't dump in the ocean. The people responsible for that took the advice of Ken and other people and started thinking about how to change their regulations to uh, understand and take account of these scientific needs. And the scientific community decided that they didn't think that this really looked like a particularly effective way of sucking down carbon dioxide, though it's not a settled question. There are some people who still like it, some people who dislike it very much. But what I find interesting about this is that it was a, a kind of scary, weird idea that was tested and that was discussed and that it was found that there were existing international rules for providing some level of governance. And so I think that's something, I'm, I hope you feel proud of it. Do you think that's something of a success story? I, I think there was some overreaction there, but I, overall it was largely a success. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about engineering climate solutions. Coming up, Greg Dalton asks whether geoengineering is a last-ditch Hail Mary or a way to start stabilizing the climate now. A time when the Earth is already going through severe climate changes and geopolitical panic is exactly the wrong time to launch a large planet-changing sort of um, effort. That's up next when Climate One continues. Sponsorship for the Climate One podcast comes in part from Villanova University. Passionate about sustainability? Villanova University offers graduate degrees in sustainable engineering. The master's and the PhD can be completed as a full-time or part-time student, online or on campus, and are available for engineers and non-engineers alike. Villanova's interdisciplinary program explores the full environmental, social, and economic aspects of sustainable engineering. VUSustainableEngineering.com We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about geoengineering with Ken Caldera, a climate scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford University. Oliver Morton, author of The Planet Remade, How Geoengineering Could Change the World. And award-winning science fiction author Kim Stanley Robinson. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. 
Oliver Morton, you write about Greenfinger. There's a, a, a scientist at, at the University of California, San Diego, uh, that writes about billionaires buying spaceships, etc. David Victor? Ah, David Victor, yes. Um, no, David's uh, a, very, uh, a, a, a very insightful analyst of the political economy of energy. And uh, David's worked a bit on, uh, on, on climate geoengineering, and he dubbed this idea Goldfinger. And the idea is that the thing about putting particles into the upper atmosphere like a volcano does is that you don't have to be all flashy and boomy and multi-megatonny like a volcano to do that. You can do that with aircraft or with balloons maybe or something like that. And there's debate about how difficult it is, but it's not very difficult. And in, a, in an era when a man like Elon Musk can you know, build a space fleet, um, the idea of building the capac capacity to alter the planet in, a way, in, in such a way just out of one person's capital um, is oddly plausible. Uh, I mean, the idea that um, the political reality of the world would allow someone to do this uh, without, you know, without shutting them down, that is a little bit less plausible to my mind. And Bill Gates gets pulled into this because I, it's known that Bill Gates funds some geoengineering research at Ken and David's Labs and a few other places. And so when you've got a billionaire um, and you've got this idea that this is, in an odd way, cheap enough that a billionaire can do it. Um, I remember hearing someone from Google once talking about a space mission and he said, is this really, expe really expensive? Well, this is something that a guy like me could do. And, <laughs> and so, to give an idea of the scale of effort, Ken Caldera, it's estimated that the amount of uh, flights that would it would take to maintain an aerosol layer, a small particle layer in the stratosphere, enough to offset all of the warming expected this century, would be about one one thousandth the size of the commercial aviation industry. So it'd be about the number of flights each year that occur by commercial aviation every six or eight hours. So it's it's really a tiny economically tiny cost to and do this. I just thought one out would be even smaller than that because an, enough geoengineering to counteract everything is a very high amount of geoengineering, especially if you're talking about geoengineering in some way being um, floated in on top of emissions reductions. That's not, you're not, you don't want to, re, to, you don't want to reproduce the effect of a large volcano. It would I mean, if you're talking about realistic scenarios down that line, you're talking about something actually yet more tenuous than that, yet so, easier. So it's doable, uh, and so something that sounds like a science fiction novel, Kim Stanley Robinson, we're sitting here talking about it like, oh, a billionaire could do it with a few planes, not that big a deal. I'd like to get your thoughts on how something like science fiction is becoming closer and closer to just simple possibility. Well, this is an, um, what we're telling is a science fiction story, a science fiction scenario, and we're running several scenarios at once, and they, they tend to get tangled, but the, the, the single uh, person changing the world is a very old science fiction story, basically the rocket ship that you build in your backyard and go to the moon. So this is a, a, a really common kind of a Horatio Alger story. But I think it is will instantly get tangled with governance and will be something that the civilization at large can approve or disapprove, can shoot down or whatever. Um, there are problems with the geoengineering of just uh, blocking sunlight in that if you keep on spewing out CO2, a, a third to a half of it ends up in the ocean. The ocean gets more acidic. 
If the ocean's more acidic, it may lose the bottom of the food chain, um, and then the rest of the food chain collapses also, and that's a third of humanity's food. So we actually do need to decarbonize as well as these other things. Okay. And the solar geoengineering is a kind of an emergency science fiction story. What if um, temperatures really begin to spike? What if methane begins to get released to the atmosphere off of the ocean floor, or the permafrost begins to melt such that the frozen carbon in the permafrost and methane begins to release fast? and suddenly it, every year it's like two degrees hotter than the year before and we are clearly reaching a, a, a moment of crossing one of those tipping points into a completely different planet, a jungle planet. At that point, then you say, we need to put the, uh, but, the dust in the air. But that's Other the one that, re that, that's, that sort of scenario is the one that, that really concerns me because that's actually a very common way of framing this story about geoengineering, that you hear the idea that it's a sort of like, in case of emergency, break glass sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And a time when the Earth is already going through um, severe climate changes and geopolitical panic is exactly the wrong time to launch a large planet-changing sort of um, effort. Uh, and it's very um, pr prone to, you know, the theory of emergencies that you get in Kashmir and other, other places, that you know, he who makes the emergency makes the rule. It, it, it fundamentally challenges ideas about democratic or quasi or pseudo-democratic governance in the climate system. It seems to me that it's much, much wiser to talk about introducing small amounts of geoengineering um, at a time when the world is not completely freaked sure. out than large amounts at a time when it is. Sure, but this is a wiser means perhaps less likely to happen. When, when everybody would agree to do something is I think when uh, after you have, say, the first food crisis, uh, planetary food crisis, uh, something uh, severe enough to shock people. Before that, it will be uh, intensely argued and there will never be enough agreement for the world community to do it, and then you get the idea of the, Ra the Rambo um, individual doing it on their own. Uh, if you run the scenarios, there's, there's never a good one uh, for geoengineering unless you start talking about, let's uh, uh, reforest all the places that have been deforested, the Pacific Northwest, uh, the Amazon. You can capture 100 gigatons of carbon by reforesting. Let's um, try out uh, geoengineering uh, once in, over the Arctic. Uh, let's let's uh, stabilize population. Um, let's capture the carbon that we're burning when we burn uh, fossil fuels. Uh, people uh, are saying, oh my god, that would make energy twice as expensive as it is now, as if that's a stopper. Energy is insanely cheap. It's too cheap. So you make it twice as expensive and your bill for the month goes from $10 to $20 and it's really only the big industries that are being hurt by this. Let's let Ken Caldera get in here. Okay, so the same climate models that project all these terrible outcomes for global warming universally predict that those climate outcomes will be much less worse with solar geoengineering applied at some reasonable level. And if you thought that we were eventually someday going to need it, the scenario that Oliver lays out where it's slowly ramped in, where we sort of tiptoe into it would be the most environmentally responsible way to do it. Unfortunately, the most environmentally responsible way is also the most politically difficult. And the political reality is closer to what Stan was saying, where in an emergency situation, there are model projections that suggest that mammals will not be able to survive outdoors in the tropics because they won't be able to evaporatively cool themselves. 
There is potential for widespread crop failure in the tropics due to heat stress on crops. And so there is potential for widespread suffering. And if that happens, the incentive, if, if there's a leader of a country whose people are starving and they think by injecting some particles in the stratosphere, they can feed their people and alleviate suffering, the political pressure to do that's going to be intense. And, and so I, while I think Oliver's scenario would be the most environmentally responsible, I think Stan's scenario is the more plausible one. Well, let me, I, it's, it's by Martin. framing scenarios like this that we make things plausible yes. and possible. And one of the things I object to about the emergency framing is that it lets Ken and his colleagues off the hook because they're then able to study geoengineering, saying we don't really have to worry about responsible, plausible politics because those aren't likely to happen. And if there's an emergency, of course, we'll use something. I think that if you actually think that something is good and could reduce harm, then you should be working on trying to, reach, in trying to reframe those politics from the get-go, rather than saying, well, we'll do this interesting scientific research, and it's fascinating scientific research. If I didn't think that, I wouldn't have written a book about it. But if you just do that and say, well, the politics will only be the politics of the emergency and we can't have any say over that, then I think you're, to some extent, um, ducking the issue. And do, do you think that doing research also makes it more likely that once there's more money, more funding, more jobs, momentum, that sort of researching something kind of puts it in motion to happening, Oliver Morton? Uh, I think that people worry very much about technological lock-in. At the same time, governments put huge amounts of money into nuclear energy, and they're seeing less and less of that around the world. I don't think that the argument that just because we research something, it will necessarily happen. There are a lot of things. I mean, for instance, some, a lot of this work dates back to the, uh, has its like prehistory in debates about supersonic air transport in the 1960s and 70s. In the 1960s, everyone thought that the obvious next step for passenger air transport was to have supersonic planes. Um, and my government and the French government actually did something about this, um, so did the Russians. The Americans talked about it and talked about what would be the effect on the stratosphere, putting lots of little particles up there. That's why this is familiar. And decided, and also thought about what would be the noise at ground level, and decided, no, that's not something we'll do. The idea that research necessarily leads to deployment, uh, there are examples where it's the case, because most things that end up deployed have been researched, but there are a lot of examples where things have been researched and then quietly let go. And I'm, I'm, I don't think that there's any evidence that geoengineering is particularly pernicious in that respect. I want to I uh, clarify that I like um, the idea of geoengineering because I think we're already doing it, and once we admit to it and begin to try to take control of it for good, um, we are, are in a more honest relationship with the planet. And I would agree that the, the best scenario would be to go ahead and try it out, and what's uh, shocking about that is that trying it out is really the full thing. Um, in that you put some dust in the atmosphere and see what happens to temperatures. And we know from volcanoes that really not that ex much experimentation is, is necessary. We know that it works at what it does. So, and also, I've seen the, the uh, human terrain, and the discussion in this civilization has changed so fast in the last 10 years that even now, us talking is changing uh, the perception of what geoengineering is and how acceptable it might be. 10 years ago, we couldn't have had this conversation, but the 10 hottest years 
that we have on record took place in this century. So global warming is happening, and everybody knows it. The denialists are now uh, just a fraction of the power that they had in this society 10 years ago. They're going to uh, uh, slink away from this and pretend they never said it. And we are going to be in a world of global warming. And geoengineering is going to be something that's talked about more and more. And it may happen in the good uh, scenario rather than the emergency where, where once you have a food crisis, everybody's going to be behaving with that level of craziness that won't be good for any uh, human decision. Although there's some recent evidence uh, recently that the more the scientific evidence has consolidated around climate change, uh, the more deniers, and actually I'm not so sure that, that uh, denial has been gone down as the scientific consensus has advanced. You're just joining us, our guest today at Climate Wonder, Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, science fiction author, Oliver Morton, the briefings editor at The Economist, and Ken Caldera from the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to ask each of you, when you think about geoengineering, Kim Stanley Robinson, what gives you fear? Um, that people will do the thing they maybe do with the idea that humanity could live on Mars or on some other planet, that they will uh, take less seriously the responsibility to uh, decarbonize fast. Oliver Morton, what gives you fear when you think about the prospect for geoengineering? Well, I think the biggest risks entailed in relatively small-scale solar geoengineering of the sort we've been talking about, the big risks are geopolitical, um, rather than geophysical in my mind. And what worries me about almost all geopolitical risks is nuclear weapons. And I find it extraordinary that I read people say that geoengineering um, provides a, an unparalleled threat to human existence and it's something unlike anything else we've ever done. We build machines that can end civilization and set them loose in the oceans. I mean, not uncontrolled, obviously, but uh, the idea that geoengineering is a problem that's somehow vaster than the ability we have to start and end nuclear wars is, is, doesn't make sense to me. So nuclear war is what worries me about geoengineering. Ken Caldera? I think my fear is that the same lack of thoughtful societal deliberation that we're applying to GMOs and healthcare and policy in many areas will also extend to the discussion of geoengineering. It seems that we've devolved into a period where tribalism trumps uh, careful analysis of empirical evidence. And, and I think unless we can make political decisions based on sound information, our society's in big trouble. Oliver Morton, you write that planet speak weakens the ties between nature and humans and makes the planet as this abstract geophysical okay. entity and that talking about the planet distances the problem. That's a problem. Talking I, I, uh, yes, I do say that. So not surprising, I agree with it. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> on Wednesdays and Thursdays, on other days. Um, yes, the idea of the planet, very, the very powerful icon for the environmental movement of the planet floating in space. It's extremely powerful, but it's also strangely alienating because it takes us out of the environment that's nurturing us and that we are changing. Um, and there's a lot of modernist thought that's, that's similar to this, and it leads to this strange paradox to me that um, as we see, we feel ourselves um, divorcing from nature to some extent, living a more urban lifestyle, living with more high-tech food, these sorts of things, living with high energy. We are in a strange, hidden way, becoming much more intimate with nature because 
in a, there is a sense in the pre-industrial age where you can make a sort of like reasonable distinction between the human and the natural. Um, but when you think that, for instance, due to nitrogen, artificial nitrogen in fertilizers, 40% of the nitrogen atoms in your body come from a factory, that's the sort of thing that makes you realize there is a big intimate interconnection between what it is to be human and what it is to be part of the planet that we kind of lose when we see the planet over there and us over here behind the moon looking at it and saying, oh, we have a duty to this poor little fragile planet. Um, and that's not the way to think about it. We are inside it. One of the strongest images of the planet, the images of the planet that I keep coming back to at the moment, are the images that you get in the paintings of Turner, where you can't see where the in industry and where the weather and where the human activity begin and end, where your, your whole perspective is within the movements and the motions of this great engine. Kim Stanley Robinson, let's turn to uh, Hollywood popular culture. There's been a number of films recently, well, going back to the day after tomorrow, about uh, 10 years ago, which talked about the changing Arctic currents and, and kind of like Superstorm Sandy hitting New York. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been others. Matt Damon seems to go to different planets all the time. Uh, Snowpiercer uh, was Never a movie. It works out well for him, though, doesn't no. it? Yeah. And Snowpiercer was a film about geoengineering gone wrong. Tell us about the, the portrayal and popular culture of these <clears throat> concepts. Well, I've dealt with it myself, and uh, the, it's, a, it's a, a difficult narrative problem because uh, climate change is going to take place over decades or centuries, and so you want your narrative to take place over days or at most months. And indeed, for, for me, I can speak for myself, and it happened with this movie, The Day After Tomorrow, when they analyzed the Greenland ice core data, they saw that the younger Dryas, where we went from a, a warm, a wet world into a cold, dry world, had happened in about three years. And they postulated that perhaps the Gulf Stream had shut down because of fresh water on its surface and that this explained it. And all this uh, uh, scientific work and explanation of peculiar data gave us the idea of abrupt climate change. And then I had my story. And so did the day after tomorrow. You can tell a story that takes place in three years. And uh, it's a frightening one, but it also allows you to get narrative traction on it. So, and also telling the story of things going wrong is inherently more dramatic than the story of things going right. And as a utopian science fiction writer, I've dealt with that one also. So there are uh, several um, problems for the way that we tell stories to be able to engage with climate change. Greg Dalton has been talking about engineering a global thermostat with Ken Caldera, a climate scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford University. Oliver Morton, author of The Planet Remade, How Geoengineering Could Change the World. And award-winning science fiction author Kim Stanley Robinson. This is Climate One. Coming up, Greg welcomes a new panel of guests and asks how more local concerns might influence the geoengineering debate. People are going to push very hard to deal with these heat waves or we're losing our crops or we're losing our redwoods. These things are, I think, are going to drive a need for technology that really hasn't been invented. That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One. Let's continue the conversation about geoengineering as Greg Dalton now welcomes Albert Lin, a professor at the UC Davis School of Law who studies the governance of geoengineering research. Jane Long, co-chair of the Task Force on Geoengineering at the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington and a former associate director for energy and environment at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. And Armand Neukermans, a physicist and inventor involved in geoengineering. Here again is your host, Greg Dalton. 
Jane Long, how did you come to discover uh, the sort of uh, fantasy or science fiction of geoengineering? Well, I came to Livermore uh, not knowing very much about climate science. I had been working a lot in energy, and I uh, taught myself. I took a course in climate science, and then I got asked by a, a government uh, official to put together a panel, which we did because they wanted to hear from scientists about whether or not this was a good idea. And we put this panel together, and, and lo and behold, uh, it wasn't just scientists, actually. We had... Um, people from, that were diplomats, we had political scientists, we had ethicists on this panel, and a unanimous conclusion that we needed to start looking into this technology. Armand Nukermans, um, you were involved, there's a group of people involved in developing the inkjet printer uh, at HP. Uh, how does that relate to geoengineering, the, the inkjet printers that many of us have in our homes and offices? How does that relate to painting the sky. Well, the real story is that uh, Steve Schneider and, and Jim Lovelock uh, came together at our house, and they say, you know, well, don't these two guys in Scotland that sort of trying to get some idea going about spraying and small particles? Yes, I worked on that 40 years ago. And so they invited me to Scotland. And I say, you know, I'm not going. This is too much carbon and all that kind of stuff. And so... <laughs> Anyway, they twisted my arm, and I ended up going, and then I said, I'm going to go there to help the guy. Well, they handed me the project, and so, because they wanted the project in Silicon Valley. Where you How much scotch did you, after? <laughs> I don't need very much scotch. Okay. One glass is enough, and it was a very good one. There. So, we, we had, so they twisted my arm, and so, I mean, basically it's changed my life, so that's what I've been doing the last six years. And so let's use that inkjet printer or a glass of milk and explain for us simply what we're talking about, spraying mist into the air that reflects the sun back? Well, this is a relatively simple idea that basically you use the clouds like a mirror. And this, this particular one, which we call marine cloud brightening, was invented by John Latham, who is an atmospheric scientist, in England, and he was walking with his son in Wales, and they came out of the cloud, and some said, wow, look at that. This is like a mirror. And so John started thinking about this and then wrote something, 1990 or something like that, wrote an article about this, and, you know, who's worried about geoengineering or climate change at the time? And so it's sat there for 10 years, and then things go on, and people start saying, maybe we have to look into this. So, but this is a relatively simple idea, and, you know, I'm, I'm not a atmospheric scientist, so there's, there's uh, room for some discussion here. But anyway, so, you know, if you look at here at California, when you go to the coast, uh, most of the time the clouds there aren't very gray, are gray. And clouds are white, it's just like a glass of milk, right? So if I take milk, it looks very white, and if I dilute it, then it gets gray. And there's nothing white or gray in that whole milk. There's just little droplets of, and there's water and there's little droplets of fat in it, and the combination of multiple scattering gives you that color. So what happens in the clouds that are um, sort of um, gray, they don't have very many droplets, or they're quite big. And so the idea is that if you would help by a natural means to bring more droplets in there, nuclei as they call it, they will become droplets too, and you'll have more scattering. So it will look lighter. The clouds will like. So clouds right. are mirrors. You can make the mirrors stronger and reflect more mm -hmm. heat mm -hmm. up into, uh, bounce it back into the uh, atmosphere, and yep. it won't warm into the space. earth into, into space. space. Yep. Uh, Alan, this sounds like playing God. Who gets to play God? Well, this is a very interesting question raised by these various techniques that fall within the, the rubric of geoengineering. 
Um, I mean, one of the reasons why geoengineering is a controversial topic is because uh, it's talking about potentially uh, trying to affect, influence the climate at this very broad scale, uh, akin to perhaps, uh, you could say, playing God. And the question is, of course, who would do this? And ultimately, ideally, this decision would be made by the international community, by humanity as a whole. Um, how would that be made, though? There's, there's all sorts of questions regarding what well, could one country do it on its own or even uh, an individual who had the financial means to try to do this. Uh, there are these researchers who would like to go forward in a very uh, transparent way uh, with uh, further experiments to try to develop geoengineering uh, techniques or to see whether they might be uh, feasible. Uh, but at this point, um, they've held off on going forward because of this sense that they don't have yet a social license. And the idea behind the social license is that uh, they're concerned about the reactions uh, that might take place, and they also want to, uh, I, I think, uh, have a sense that whatever research is produced, the research results are uh, legitimate and will be accepted as uh, legitimate. So at this point, um, we're kind of at a standoff, uh, is my sense of it, uh, where uh, we have uh, a number, a growing number of researchers who are interested in doing some field experiments, um, but uh, a bit hesitant, and hesitant partly because of the social license issue, and connected to the social license issue, uh, a reluctance of uh, various government uh, entities to uh, fund the research. So I see that a Jane little. Long. I see that a little differently. I think there's quite a few people who are ready to do small scale, very low risk experiments that are looking at actually how. The, the chemistry and the physics actually occurs. These are small, relatively small, and they uh, try to look at the mechanisms by which particles form and how they reflect and, and whether or not they impact the ozone or other things that would be deleterious. They're ready to go, but there's no money. There's no funding for these projects. It's the government that is holding back on the social license. And I think what's happened is that the National Academy of Sciences, for the first time, was asked by the government to produce a report. Uh, uh, and that report on, on geoengineering recommends research. And this has begun to open the door uh, to thinking about funding. I mean, the first act of governance is funding. If you don't get funding for the project, then you know the government has basically governed you out. You're not <laughs> going to do it. So I think there, uh, we, we have cataloged a number of very important experiments, which happen to also be very important for climate science. Uh, you know, one of the ironies of, of most of the geoengineering technologies that are out there is that they involve either aerosols or clouds. And those are two of the things that are, have most of the, a lot of the uncertainty in climate models in understanding how the climate works comes from not having a very good understanding of how aerosols behave and how clouds behave. So there's, a, there's now a body of research that's been defined which would go out in a very small scale and put a few particles in the atmosphere and try to understand what it actually does on a, on a very small scale that would help us understand if these technologies would be effective or advisable. And I think those are the two first things that really have to go forward at small scale and at low risk. I think there are quite a few scientists that are ready to go. I don't think they're waiting for a social license. I think they believe in this. It's what we need is, is funding to move forward. Uh, Alan, what do you think about private funding and sort of for-profit motivation and how this could be governed? And should this be something that's only funded by the government? Well, I think private funding is a concern. I generally agree with what Jane said about the need for 
you know, whatever research, field research activities take place to be subject to uh, public accountability and transparency. Uh, and that's much harder to do when you have uh, private funding going on. Uh, some of you may be familiar with an incident a couple of years ago where uh, an American businessman uh, undertook uh, an ocean iron fertilization project out in the Pacific. There's some disclaimer uh, on his part as to whether that was uh, a geoengineering experiment or not. Many people perceived it as a geoengineering experiment, given the background of uh, that particular person involved. Uh, and that was essentially privately funded. It was funded by a, a Native American tribe uh, up in Canada, um, which is actually seeking enhanced salmon runs. But uh, you know, arguably, uh, it was also a type of geoengineering research, which was done without uh, public oversight and public accountability. And there's, there's a lot of concerns uh, about what that could lead to because uh, of the possibility that ultimately some of these activities could be undertaken uh, privately without uh, a public say, without saying, say, by government over uh, what goes on. But, but there is a difference, essentially. You know, look, quite frankly, our society couldn't operate anymore and people would be dying on the street without the private support of NGOs and all that kind of stuff. And if you now see what's going on in science, it's not very different. A lot of the science, even academic, you know, is already funded by private. Look at the Moore Foundation, the stuff that they come there. I mean, I don't understand it, what they're funding, you know, so... What is that essence is here that if you're going to do an experiment, okay, you need the approval of a, of a very competent body. Whoever is going to fund it, that's something else. But you need the approval from you know, who is competent enough to judge that. That's really what's happened. And so let me give you an example. Uh, we sort of you know, worked on this for six years. What we're making is a, sort of like a snowblower, but the particles, the droplets that come out are a thousand times smaller. Okay? So we thought it was right, ready for... It isn't quite ready yet, but anyway. So the University of Washington, as was always the plan, is taking this over, and they have two intentions, essentially. One is to study the clouds with this, because they could make and shape the clouds with this and study them like they've never done before, and then look at geoengineering. And what it really comes down to is that we take each one of these sprayers, sprays a half a glass, a half a glass of seawater, okay? That's what it does, all right? Would you need permission to do that normally? I mean, you spray this and that. You know, we dump 30 gigatons in the, in the atmosphere or 35 every year, and no one asks for permission. So, but in the interest of the controversy, we will seek permission and say, this is the test. You have to have total transparency because of what's happened in the past. People did these tests, and they say, you know, we're going to get carbon credits out of this. Well, sure, you're going to get carbon. They turn around very quickly. So you, you have to have the moral ground to say, look, this is the experiment that we're going to do, and we'd like to have approval from a competent body. Jane Long, is it moral to do this research into changing the sky in a, in a hubris kind of godlike way, or maybe it's immoral not to do it? I think it's immoral not to do it. I think that we have created a situation for our offspring, and you know, my grandchildren, your grandchildren, they're the people that will come after us, that could be untenable, and it's part of taking responsibility. I think we have to take responsibility for, for the earth because that's where we all live and because that's where our children and their children are going to live. And so the need to learn how to take responsibility is paramount in our survival. If you're just joining us at Climate One, we're talking about geoengineering, 
increasing the brightness of clouds and other interventions in the atmosphere to reflect heat up into the atmosphere and cool the earth. Also joining us here are Albert Lin from the UC Davis School of Law, Jane Long from the Task Force on Geoengineering at the Bipartisan Policy Center, and Armand Neukerman, a physicist and inventor. I'm Greg Dalton. Jane Long, let's talk about some of the regional impacts. We've been talking at a global scale. What are some of the ways that this could be done at a regional scale in California, the southwestern U.S.? I think what's happened here is because there hasn't been a coherent program, very few people have begun to think about this. And the governance issues for the global ideas that came up uh, very early on, you know, we're going to put stratospheric sulfur everywhere. It's going to reflect, and the whole world is going to become a lower temperature. Um, the governance that goes along with that is just totally non-existent. But the idea that we're going to get specific local regional climate problems and people are going to push very hard to deal with these heat waves or we're losing our crops or we're losing our redwoods, these things are, I think are going to become very palpable. And I think they will drive uh, a need for, uh, for technology that really hasn't been invented and the sci- there's no uh, body of science that looks at what you might call extreme adaptation. And yet the governance of that type of uh, activity is probably uh, a lot easier. So if you've had a heat wave for a month and every year you get a heat wave and it's a little longer and it's a little hotter, somebody's going to want you to do something about it and there's going to be a huge amount of pressure. So does the possibility, Jane Long, of a quick technological fix mean that we can go about our carbon-intensive lives and keep driving big cars and flying around and eating steak and like, well, well, you know, I can take a pill later. I don't have to diet. I can get gastric bypass surgery or whatever it is and live, live happily. You know, I, there's just no silver bullet here. And basically, these technologies are not going to work if we keep emitting. I think one of the most important things about climate science that most people don't understand is that that all that carbon dioxide that we put in the atmosphere stays there for a really, really long time, like a 1,000 years before it decays. And so if we stop tomorrow, if we stop emitting tomorrow, we still have everything that we've put up there to deal with, which is continuing to warm the earth. So if you keep emitting and you keep emitting, you can't keep up with it with any of these technologies. The only thing that we can think about is this might take the edge off for a while while we finish this energy transition that we have to make. Um, and, and maybe we have to go farther. Maybe we find that not only is that energy transition not enough, but we have to take some of that carbon dioxide that's up in the atmosphere now and take it out. But the first thing and the most important thing is the energy transition. If you don't do that, nothing else is going to work. Albert Lynn. I think we have to be careful about uh, research. Um, I'm not opposed to research as a, in principle. Uh, I, I think, you know, when we think about, well, research generally produces knowledge, and knowledge is a good thing. We want to know more about these things to know what to, to do, whether to move forward with these technologies. Uh, but there are concerns regarding, you know, what the net effect of research is. That is, what role does any individual project play? You might say, well, a particular experiment doesn't produce much risk, but is it part of this larger scheme whereby ultimately we move down this road where uh, we've invested so much, where we've created uh, vested constituencies, 
whether it's companies or scientific communities that are interested in going forward because they have a personal or financial or professional stake uh, in moving forward with the actual deployment and not just the research. I think that's a very real danger we have to uh, be aware of and uh, be concerned with, uh, assuming that research, field research does go forward. Greg Dalton has been talking about geoengineering with UC Davis law professor Albert Lind, who studies the governance of geoengineering research. Jane Long, co-chair of the Task Force on Geoengineering at the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington. And Armand Eukermans, a physicist and inventor involved in geoengineering. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirshner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.